Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. The Volume. We're back with another week of football, and DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping us in on the NFL action with great offers every single game day. New customers can bet $5 and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Throw five down on any of this week's epic matchups and walk away an instant winner. And DraftKings isn't stopping there. All customers can take advantage of two new offers every single game day this September. Football's more fun when you're in on the action. So download the app now and sign up with code HOOPS. New customers can bet just $5 to get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on the DraftKings Sportsbook app, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, with code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 888- 789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. Licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles in Louisiana. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. See sportsbook.draftkings.com football terms for eligibility. Terms and responsible gambling resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Friday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had a great week. We are live on AMP, so if you're watching on YouTube or listening on our podcast feed, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We're continuing our power rankings today with number 12, the Sacramento Kings. And then I've got four mailbag questions for the end of the show as well. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT. Don't forget about our podcast feed under Hoops Tonight. And I need mailbag questions, so drop those in the YouTube comments 
so we can continue to hit those at the end of our shows. Also, last but not least, before we get started, the start of pro basketball is still a couple of weeks away, but there's no shortage of events to attend in the meantime. Obviously, we've got baseball going on, and we still have concerts and comedy shows all over the country, but now we also have the return of pro and college football. So the best way to get tickets to any of these events is through GameTime, the fastest-scoring ticketing app in the United States. For amazing last-minute deals on tickets to see your favorite football or baseball team, download GameTime. And again, it's not just sports. All of the concerts touring around the country, all the comedians touring around the country, GameTime has tickets to those as well. Download the GameTime app and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, download the GameTime app and enter code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S, for $20 off. No matter where you live, get out and have some fun this week. Download the GameTime app. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right, let's talk some basketball. So a quick off-season recap for the Sacramento Kings. They lost Terrence Davis, Matthew Dellavedova, P.J. Dozier, Rashawn Holmes, and Shemezi Metu. They added Chris Duarte, who's a young scoring guard from the Pacers. Had a rough year last year, but he does have some talent. Um, JaVale McGee is a backup center. You guys might remember me doing a scouting report. Uh, I'm not sure how many Kings fans found this, but around the uh, uh, shortly into the beginning of free agency, I did a full breakdown of Sasha Vizankov. He played for Olympia, uh, Olympiacos last year, and he won the EuroLeague MVP. Super, super exciting post player. He was devastatingly efficient in the post last year, 1.26 points per possession on 151 post-ups. Has like a ridiculous set of left shoulder fadeaways. He's got kind of like a one leg fadeaway over his left shoulder. He's got kind of like a drifting fadeaway over his left shoulder. And then he's got like kind of a power fade that he'll hit when he gets good separation. But he knocks that down a ton. He's over 50% on hooks and on floaters. And he's a really good passer. He actually reminds me of like a like it's funny because he plays the same position as Sabonis, right? And so your head quickly goes the direction of Sabonis. But I actually like think of him more as uh, a Jokic type of archetype. And I don't mean he's as good as Jokic, obviously. But just in the play style, he's a much better shot maker than Sabonis. His touch away from the basket is several levels better than Sabonis. Obviously, he's not the athlete that uh, uh, Demonis is. But he's got this shot-making piece away from the rim that Sabonis doesn't. So I kind of like the fit because it's like a schemes consistency thing, right? Because they play the same position, so now when Sabonis goes to the bench, you can bring in another player to run all these dribble handoffs and all these ball screens with a similar level of offensive skill, albeit a different kind of form of it, right, with the shot-making. He was 57% in effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers last year in Europe, 47% on pull-up jump shots, effective field goal percentage. You'll see him, you know, dribble the ball around the top of the key and then uh, fake an action with somebody. And then when the guy just kind of concedes a shot a few feet back, he'll just quick turn and rise and fire from the top of the key. He's got that in his bag. He Legitimately a very, very good shot maker, makes everything around the rim. Uh, Again, it's going to be difficult to see how it translates to the NBA. That's always the question when you bring a guy over from Europe. But this dude was well over a point per possession in inverted pick and rolls, well over a point per possession in isos, well over a point per, per, per possession in the post. He was devastatingly efficient in Europe last year, so I'm really interested to see how it translates. Really, it'll just come down to what he can do defensively. Who can you guard? That's always the question when you get to the NBA, and I do like the scheme consistency having him coming in for Sabonis. They also drafted Colby Jones in the early second round. Um, 
big guard out of Xavier. Good physical tools. He's got he's about six five. Got has about a six eight wingspan. Um, reasonably strong. I think he'll put on a couple pounds too. I wouldn't be surprised if he's up around two ten by the time he gets to training camp. Uh, uses his physical tools well, like he like most big guards that you're hoping for. He plays slow and methodically. Gets guys trapped on his backside. Really, really good floater. He was actually 55 percent on 77 floaters last year. He loves to kind of like bait you into contesting a mid range shot, right? Like he'll kind of snake the pick and roll and like get into the mid range and like hesitate back like he's going to shoot. And then he loves to step through and shoot that little right handed floater. Over the top. He also was a very good catch and shoot player. He was 64% in effective field goal percentage on catch and shoot jump shots last year. And he shot 62% at the rim, which is very good for a guard. Biggest weakness for him right now does not have a, a reliable pull up jump shot. He was just 19 for 70 on pull up jump shots last year. But I do like the pick. And I think he could immediately help the Kings kind of as like a second side creator off the bench. This is a, a team that's got a lot of guys that love to come flying off of screens and shoot and uh, um, guys that are uh, taller and lankier and more off-ball players, but it'd be interesting to kind of have him potentially <clears throat> as a long-term prospect as a guard. He actually was 1.10 points per possession in 205 pick and rolls last year. That's awesome, especially for a young player. So I, I, d- I definitely like the Colby Jones pick as a long-term prospect. The depth chart coming into this season <clears> – <throat> At guard, De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, Davion Mitchell, Kevin Herter, Colby Jones, and Chris Duarte. At forward, Harrison Barnes, Keegan Murray, Trey Lyles, and Kessler Edwards, one of my favorite young wing defenders in the league there in Kessler. Uh, and then their bigs, Demonis Savonis, Sasha Vizankov. He might end up playing some forward as well. That'd be really interesting if you could play the two of them together, especially with the uh, weakness they had on the front line and rebounding situations and just in general protecting the rim. Alex Len and JaVale McGee as well. All right, let's talk about the offensive end of the floor for a minute. So the Kings had the number one offense in the NBA last year by a significant margin. They averaged 118.6 points per 100 possessions. That was a full 1.3 points ahead of second place. They also had the second best half-court offense, just 0.3 points per 100 possessions behind the Dallas Mavericks. They were a heavy, heavy transition team. They scored 2,059 points last year in transition, according to Synergy. That was the third most in the NBA. Um, they were not an efficient transition team. They scored just 1.11 points per possession in transition, which was 25th in the NBA. NBA. But like we were talking about with the Memphis Grizzlies, 1.11, which is not efficient compared to other transition offenses, is still way more efficient than even the best half-court offense could ever hope to be. The Mavs were the best half-court offense in the league last year at a 105 offensive rating, so even at a 111 in transition, that's better than anything you're going to get in half-court, which is why teams like that hunt those opportunities so often. Um, they were super low in volume uh, for pick and roll compared to the rest of the league, only 28 times per game. Only the Warriors run fewer pick and rolls than the Kings, but that's because they run a lot of their two game as dribble handoffs, uh, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But they were great when they did run pick and rolls. They were 1.05 points per possession. That was the fifth highest mark in the league. Deer and Fox led the way here. You guys remember that high volume pick and roll list I've been talking about all offseason? So like the 15 guys who ran at least 1,000? Well, Deer and Fox ran 999, so he just barely missed that list, but had he made that list, his 1.08 points per possession would have been fourth on the list. So De'Aaron Fox was one of the very best 
uh, pick and roll ball handlers in the league last year for all intents and purposes, even though he didn't meet my uh, uh, 1000 qualification. All about versatility with Darren Fox. He was 46% on pull up jump shots in the mid range, 54% on floaters. So just a devastating mid range attack short of the rim. Awesome at the rim as well. He was 77% in the restricted area on three makes per game. And he can make all the passes, right? To the roll man and the kickout passes to shooters as well. I thought he passed really well for the most part in the Warriors series. His only real weakness right now with De'Aaron Fox is his three-point shooting off the dribble. He's only 30% on pull-up threes last season. But that super diverse shot creation in pick and roll. Again, it's like we talk about three-level scoring when it comes to like uh, ISO players, right? Like at the rim, mid-range, three-point shots. I look at it as like four levels with pick and roll. It's like... Can you make the threes off the bounce? Can you score in the mid-range off the uh, off the dribble? And then can you make floaters? And then can you score at the rim? The reason why the floaters and mid-range jump shots are different in pick and roll is because of back pressure. So like, if a defender's trailing you in pick and roll, a pull-up jump shot doesn't matter because you're going to take a pull-up jump shot and the guy's going to come from behind and, and swipe the ball away from you. you got to have a forward-moving shot when the defender's trailing you uh, in pick and roll. That's the floater, right? So, like, with pick-and-roll scoring, I look at it more as four levels. And right now, De'Aaron Fox is really sharp in three of the four levels. He's off the charts good at the rim, off the charts good with his floater, off the charts good with his pull-up. No, maybe not off the charts good, but very, very good with his pull-up jump shot. He just needs to tie off that three-point shooting piece, and then he will go up even a further level from there. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot. 
The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Uh, Malik Monk, Harrison Barnes, Kevin uh, Herter all just slightly over a point per possession, which is good. Keegan Murray, 1.2 points per possession, which is awesome, although in a small sample size. Davion Mitchell was really the only ball handler for the Kings last year that struggled in pick and roll. He was just a bit uh, below average. But this team just has an absurd amount of ball handling and shooting talent. Like, they were even the fifth best spot up team in the league. They converted spot up possessions at 1.09 points per possession. So that's really the uh, the the genesis of the Kings' offensive success. They've got this fulcrum right in De'Aaron Fox, who's this incredible high pick and roll player, but or uh, dribble handoff player, two just considered a two man game player, right? And that partnership with Demonis Sabonis, but then everybody around them is not just a good ball handler, but a like a, an above average ball handler, not just a good shooter, but an above average shooter. And so these guys can run these actions against a set defense and get over a point per possession. And so there is no weak point in the offense. There's no like uh, a weak point in that chain, right? And so that's why they're so successful when they start driving and kicking teams to death. Uh, but this team loves to run dribble handoffs. I was actually rewatching Game Seven against the Warriors this morning, and they ran a handoff on five of their first six possessions, and they just basically toss the ball to Sabonis sometime after they've crossed half court, and Sabonis will kind of dribble up to the to the uh, above the break line, and then he's just turning and looking and waiting for one of these guys to come off that handoff. And the Warriors, in particular, were just completely ignoring Sabonis playing off of him, but he would just wait, and then. As the offensive player would cut off of him, he would kind of hand the ball off and then he'd pivot backwards to try to generate contact with the defender as he's trailing the play to get separation, right? And guys like Keegan Murray and Kevin Herter are primarily coming off of those handoffs looking to take quick catch-and-shoot threes. And guys like Harrison Barnes and De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk are more looking to put the ball on the floor. Harrison Barnes will do a little bit of both. Um and Malik Monk will occasionally rise and fire as well. But for the most part, those guys are looking more to get off the dribble. The Kings actually ran the most handoffs in the league. They ran 129 more handoffs than the second place team, which was actually the San Antonio Spurs. And they converted handoffs at 1.08 points per possession, which was the second best mark in the league. So they were basically the very best team in the league at running handoffs. First in frequency, second in efficiency. You're not going to do any better than that. Um, now, the Warriors basically shut this action down, and the way they did that is they put Kevon Looney on, on Demonis Sabonis and had him basically just lag back into the paint. And as a result, you know, as long as that guard for the Warriors could stay reasonably attached coming over the top, Sabonis wasn't looking to shoot very often, and when he did, he didn't make enough of them. Um, in that series, uh, like, Demonis Sabonis would occasionally, like, step forward and take some three off the dribble or, or, or pull up jump shot off the dribble. Occasionally he'd turn and face Looney and attack him, but Looney was bumping him off his spots and causing all sorts of problems. So Sabonis so was kind of the weak point in that dribble handoff situation. And as long as the guard was attached over the top and could funnel the guards into the lane, Kevon Looney's there waiting. And Sabonis did have some success on the offensive glass. He grabbed a shit ton of offensive uh, rebounds in the in the series. But the total the total package of 
of Sabonis as a threat in that two-man game ended up being a problem. And the Warriors held King's dribble handoffs to just 0.87 points per possession. That's 21 points per 100 possessions worse than where they were in the regular season. Uh, The bright spot in the Warriors series was the De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk duo and the uh, ability they had to consistently get dribble penetration. So anytime you take a look at a new playoff team, right, and uh, we're going to get to see this with, uh, I think the Oklahoma City Thunder are going to make the playoffs this year, and we'll get to see what Jalen Williams can do in a playoff setting. We're going to get to see what SGA can do in a seven-gamer as the number one option, right? We're going to see Josh Giddey. We're going to see Chet Holmgren and these guys, and you're going to find out, like, Will it translate? Because that's always the question, right? And there's a difference between regular season basketball and playoff basketball, and that chasm is getting bigger and bigger by the year. And so it's always intriguing when you see a new playoff team come onto the scene, like what's good and what's not. Because the playoffs, they have a – we always talk about how they expose weaknesses, and they do. If you have a great weakness, the playoffs are going to shine a light on that. But they also shine a a light on your great strengths because even if you do – uh, uh, have an elite defense, and even if you do secure defensive rebounds, you go over to the other end of the floor, you're going to face an elite defense. And what you're going to find out really quickly there is, are your offensive fulcrums actually capable of generating quality shots against playoff caliber defenses in playoff scouting situations over a couple of weeks against the same defenders seeing them a thousand times, right? That's when you're going to find out whether or not their top-tier offensive skill is actually worth what it's capable of being worth in a playoff setting. And that was what was really intriguing and, and encouraging about this Kings team. Both De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk can beat people off the dribble in the playoffs consistently. And that was encouraging. They were able to consistently get the Warriors into rotation by beating people off the dribble. And that, to me, is a really, really good foundation moving forward because you can identify the other weaknesses, right? We're going to talk about Sabonis in a second. I thought he was the biggest weakness in their offense uh, uh, in their offense last year in the playoffs and against the Warriors. But also on the defensive end, you're going to see these specific things. But one of the positive things that came out of it was De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk. That's the foundation there. So you look at that as something you can replicate. You can count on that next year. When you get to that first-round series again, whoever it is you're playing, De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk will be able to beat people off the dribble. Okay, how do we build out the rest of it? How do we figure out how to get enough stops? How do we figure out how to fix the problem with Sabonis in the two-man game, right? So, like, we got a foundation. Now we can move forward and look at the rest of the roster from there. But let's talk about Sabonis, because I thought he was the biggest weakness in the Kings' offense um, during that playoff series. So a two-man game requires both players to be a threat. Otherwise, it's not a two-man game, right? So as much of a threat as the guards were, as good as Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox were, De'Aaron, uh, Demonis Sabonis was actually kind of a problem. His jumper was completely ineffective. He only took 23 of them in the series, despite the fact that the Warriors were basically leaving him unguarded. And he converted those 23 jump shots into just 19 points. That's 0.83 points per possession. So leaving him open was a win for the Warriors. They, he was wasn't able to convert those enough. Frequently, he wasn't. He didn't want to take them, and then even when he did, he wasn't converting them enough. And then he couldn't finish around the rim. He really, really struggled to finish over Kevon Looney and Draymond Green at the rim. As a matter of fact, after shooting 69% at the rim in the regular season, Sabonis shot just 56% at the rim against the Warriors. And this is an interesting outcome that I've seen a lot in NBA history. Bigs that don't have like unbelievable supreme gifts and like there's the thing Sabonis is not small but he's not way bigger than everybody right like 
Jokic is so much bigger than everybody at the position that he can play bully ball and it works, right? Like LeBron James is so much bigger than everybody who plays his position that he can bully ball he can play bully ball all game long, right? But when you and that and that's why even in everything that LeBron struggled with in last year's playoffs, he was good in the post, right? That's the way I look at the uh the situation with these power players that don't have the supreme uh like strength advantage, right? Look at Kevin Love over the years. Look at like Blake Griffin and what would happen to him sometimes when he would get to the playoffs. Look at Julius Randle and what's been happening to him in in the last few playoff runs, right? And then it's happening with Sabonis as well. These big forward centers that are that play bully ball during the regular season and can bury people under the rim and finish around the rim during the regular season, you get to the postseason, you face better defensive front courts, more physicality is allowed, guys are able to shove and push on you more, and suddenly that bully ball doesn't work as well. And so then you'll see Kevin Love run into Thaddeus Young and get his ass kicked, right? Or Dr- Draymond Green used to kill him too. Or you'll see Demonis Sabonis run into Kevon Looney and have problems. It, it, like Ju- you'll see Julius Randle run into Bam Adebayo, and suddenly he can't bully him, and now his lack of touch gets exposed. Like if you don't have top tier touch in those situations, it can be a problem. Like at least for Kevin Love, when it was failing, when his post up attack was failing, he could run pick and pop and and spot up to the weak side corner and be a threat. Which is why Ke- uh, Kevin Love still had some offensive impact even after his low post game was removed in specific matchups, right? But for Sabonis, he shoves people around in the regular season, gets wherever he wants to go, makes everything around the rim, and then he gets to the postseason and suddenly he can't make anything. He went from 19 points per game on 67% true shooting in the regular season to 16 points per game on 52% true shooting in the playoffs. And this has been a career-long problem for them, uh, for him. He has a career 61% true shooting in the regular season and 54% in the playoffs. That's a 7% decline over his entire career. And there's four playoff runs in there at this point. So uh, like that's the reality right now is Sabonis is not a good enough jump shooter to be a threat away from the basket and his bully ball rim attack doesn't work in the postseason. And so when you combine that with the fact that he's not a good defensive player, his impact craters when he gets to the postseason. But here's the thing, that problem's not going away because Demonis Sabonis just signed a four-year, $186 million extension. So that's something that they're going to have to learn how to overcome. So let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. We have our foundation, right? Fox and Monk beating people off the dribble. Our The second piece of our foundation is our overwhelming offensive skill, right? So it's all of the ball handling and shooting down the roster from guys like Keegan Murray, Kevin Herter, and and um, uh, Harrison Barnes, right? And he throws a bonus in there too. So you got all this offensive skill. Well, those guys all shot like shit, right? Like, especially Harrison Barnes and Kevin Herter really struggled to shoot in that uh, in that playoff series against the Warriors. As a team, as a matter of fact, the Kings shot just 31%, okay? So let's just take a glass-half-full approach there and say they were a little nervous. First playoff run for that group uh, in general. Harrison Barnes hadn't had a playoff run in a few years, Let's just call that a fluke and say they're all going to shoot better next year, okay? So let's accept that. And for the record, I'm not sure that's going to happen. But let's just accept that for the sake of this argument. So I've got my offensive foundation and my shot creators. I've got this overwhelming offensive skill. The third piece is they have to find a way to get stops. And that was never 
a priority for them last year. They were 24th in defense on the season, 28th in half-court defense, according to Cleaning the Glass. The only two worst half-court defenses in the Kings last, year's, last year were the, the Rockets and the Spurs, two teams that were deliberately trying to lose games. Uh, they were 25th in paint defense. They allowed 53 points in the paint per 100 possessions. They allowed teams to shoot 69% in the restricted area. That was 25th in the league. They were 18th in defending the three-point line and the amount of uh, made three-pointers they allowed per 100 possessions. And they were 17th in rebounding. The only thing they were good at on defense was transition. They were third in transition defensive, uh, transition defense frequency and eighth in transition defense efficiency. But outside of that, they were bad everywhere on defense. And it was everywhere in the personnel as well. Sabonis, not a good rim protector. Harrison Barnes, not a good low man help defender, right? They're, and, it, and these guys are capable of being better than they were, for the record. I'm just talking about what they were last year. Herder Murray, not good perimeter defenders. De'Aaron Fox, capable of being a good defender, had moments of being a good defender in the Warriors series, but didn't, over the course of the season, establish himself as a good perimeter defender, right? So down the line, it was a personnel issue. And, and when you're not bothering anybody around the rim, like Barnes Sabonis is one of the worst defensive front courts in the NBA. When you're not bothering anybody around the rim and you're not containing anybody on the perimeter, you're just going to give up driving lanes all day, all game long. I watched a ton of uh, Kings pick and roll defensive possessions this year because I was trying to get a feel for their scheme and their scheme was very aggressive. Like Sabonis was showing high on almost every ball screen. So like you would see uh, when the ball screener is going up to set a, a screen for the pick and roll ball handler for the other team, Sabonis is coming way out to the top of the key. And he's basically trying to catch the ball handler as he's coming off and, and contain him until the guard recovers and then he goes back. And if the guard doesn't recover, he'll hang for a switch and then the guard will peel off and try to box out the big man rolling to the basket. But Sabonis was getting toasted up there a lot, like getting just flat out beat off the dribble as he would rise up to contain, right? And teams weren't just doing that to Sabonis. They were doing it in guard-guard actions. Like, they would, like, call Kevin Herter's man over. And Herter would, like, hard show, like, catch hedge, try to, like, contain the ball for the guy to recover. And then he would just get beat, like, with a with a split back towards the screen or, or with a hard dribble around. And they just... Every single ball screen, they were giving up dribble penetration. And so, I mean, I don't really have a good answer for the off-ball actions with the with the guards, right? So, like, if they're going to bring Herter into the screen and he can't contain, I, there, there's really no answer there. Like, if Herter can't keep the ball in front of him, there's not really anything you can do. But at least in the Sabonis situations, I wouldn't be surprised if they'd tinker with that a little bit and maybe consider dropping Sabonis a little bit deeper because maybe it'd be better to give up more pull-up jump shots and floaters than all of these easy layups they're giving up at the rim. But it has to be a commitment thing from the from the top down. There are good perimeter defenders on this team. De'Aaron Fox is capable of being a good perimeter defender. Davion Mitchell is capable of being – or Davion Mitchell is an excellent perimeter defender. Um, uh, Kessler Edwards is capable of being a very good perimeter wing defender with good size, right? So, like, if you don't have rim protection, you have to be elite at the point of attack. And so, one of the things you saw Mike Brown do in the series against the Warriors is he just started taking Herter and, and Murray out of the game and playing other guys who were more willing to defend. And so at a certain point, you have to wonder if maybe Mike Brown needs to do that from a cultural standpoint from the start of camp. Like, hey, Kevin Herter, you're our guy. Keegan Murray, you're our guy. Harrison Barnes, you're our guy. I'm not trying to 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 uh, discount any of that and what we have planned for you. And obviously, we want you to have these spots. But if you don't defend, 
we're going to have to give a portion of your minutes, a bigger portion of your minutes, to guys like Davion Mitchell, to guys like Kessler Edwards, right? Guys that are at least going to try to compete on the defensive end of the floor. Right, and so that I, I think that's something that they're going to have to culturally set from the beginning of the year. Because here's the deal: Are the do the Kings have bad defensive personnel? Yes. Do I expect them to be even capable of ever having a top ten defense with Sabonis as the rim protector? No, obviously not. But should they be the 28th ranked half court defense in the league, better than just the Rockets and Spurs? Obviously not. That's just laziness. And so, as I look at the Kings this season, your goal needs to be basically the way Denver approached defense. If you're an offensive team that you think you're going to be unguardable, and for the record, I do not think the Kings are close to as good offensively as the Nuggets. We saw the Warriors contain them to an offensive rating below 110 in that playoff series. They can be stopped to a much greater extent than the Denver Nuggets can because they have a truly unstoppable offensive weapon in Nikola Jokic, and as good as De'Aaron Fox is, it's not in the same stratosphere offensively as Nikola Jokic, right? So I think this idea is dead on arrival. But even if you do think that your offense is capable of getting you over the top, you've got to get to 15 in the defensive rating. And by establishing good habits, by being a good transition defense, which you already are, by improving your defensive rebounding, which, by the way, a deeper drop could help with as well, by by containing better on the perimeter – just by by just by doing those things, by rotating better when the defense gets in rotation, chasing shooters off the line, better commitment in those areas could bump you up to 15th in defensive rating, which is going to give you the habits that you need to have a fighting chance when you get to the postseason, especially if your shooters do shoot better in the postseason, especially if Sabonis does play better in the postseason. Then you can mess around and beat some people. But to be clear, as of right now, like, even though I like that foundation of De'Aaron Fox surrounded by shooting and, and playing with the skill big, like even, even though I like that foundation, this team cannot win a championship as currently constructed. They're too weak defensively in the front court and not good enough offensively to make up for it. But they have a chance to compete within this season and win a playoff series or two if they at least establish good defensive habits and get better offensive performances out of their role players. All right, uh, let's move on to the mailbag. So first, I wanted to – so yesterday, uh, that 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 uh, random take I had about Jalen Brunson and John Morant went all over the place. Um, and unfortunately, it was – I had hit it in passing in the Knicks video, so I didn't really dive into the basketball, which is always a bummer because, like, here's the thing. I can stand on, on whatever opinion I take no matter what because I do the requisite research. But in that specific video, I didn't really break down the basketball reasons why I view Jalen Brunson as a slightly better player than John Morant in the immediate future. And so I wanted to talk about that really quick. Because, like, again, this to me falls into that classic debate uh, that we've seen throughout NBA history about the young up-and-comer versus the established guy who kind of already has the polish, right? So, for instance, like Kobe versus LeBron in the late 2000s, like 2008, 2009, 2010. LeBron fans all swore that LeBron was better because he put up better numbers and he was winning more awards and he's back-to-back MVP and all this stuff. But meanwhile, Kobe's winning playoff series, albeit with a better team, but winning playoff series because he was a better half-court shot creator at that point. This is a fact. Like... He was just a little better at navigating the playoff environment than LeBron was at that point. So I actually think Kobe was better than LeBron in the late 2010s. Then come 2012, I think LeBron took that mantle, and I don't think anybody passed him, right? That's why I was saying the same thing about Giannis. Everyone's like, oh, Giannis is the best player in the league in 2020. And I'm like, no. Like, 
LeBron is just way better at navigating the playoff chess match than Giannis is right now. He's a better player. That's kind of the way I look at the Jalen Brunson thing. John Moran is unquestionably going to be a better player than uh, Jalen Brunson in the long run. John Moran, obviously, if I'm the Knicks GM and Memphis calls me and goes, hey, I want Jalen Brunson for John Morant straight up, which I don't even think the salaries work, but of course I'd be like, yeah, like give me John Moran. I want John Moran. He's going to be a better player in the long run. That wasn't the point of what I was talking about. What I was talking about is right now, in the half-court setting that you most frequently encounter in the playoffs, Jalen Brunson is a better and more versatile shot creator. He can score out of the post. He can score in isolation. He can score in pick and roll. He was one of the very best pick and roll ball handlers in the league last year, a better one than John Morant. He was one of the best post-up guards in the league last year, one of the best ISO guards in the league last year. And so he was able to, against Cleveland, when even Donovan Mitchell was floundering against that defense, he was able to, uh, against the, uh, the Knicks defense, which was a lesser defense, against the number one defense in the league. And again, we talked about all the offensive issues that Cleveland was having, but against the number one defense in the league, Jalen Brunson was able to slowly and methodically find the good shots that existed within those games. He was able to pick on Chetty Osman in switches. He was able to identify when he'd have Darius Garland on him and try to put him into pick and roll to get a good shot, right? Like, he was able to attack the mismatches. And so as a result, when the game slowed down into those situations, Jalen was better. He was the best player on the floor. He outplayed uh, Donovan Mitchell in that series. And and so to me, that's kind of the differentiator. Like John Morant is going to have all the highlights. He's going to fill the box score, just like Giannis could fill the box score in 2020, just like LeBron could fill the box score in 2009. No one's questioning the accolades. No one's questioning what he's capable of. No one's questioning the potential in the long run. But... Right, If I had to start a playoff series tomorrow with equal supporting casts on both sides and Jalen Brunson is navigating one team and John Morant's navigating the other team, I think Jalen Brunson wins that series because as of right now, at this moment in time, he is a more dynamic half-court shot creator in the slow-down physical playoff environment. Then on the other end of the floor, Jalen Brunson is not a good defensive player, but he's not going to hurt you there most of the time. Like, I didn't think he had a good playoff, uh, or excuse me, I didn't think he had a good defensive run with Team USA, but I thought that was a commitment thing that went down the roster. Obviously, he's not a great defensive player, but he, oh, as, long as, he's, as long as he's surrounded by good personnel, he's not going to hurt you defensively in a playoff series because he's big and he's strong. You're not going to be able to bully him in the post. You're not going to be able to consistently beat him off the dribble, right? John Morant literally... Is a is an atrocious defender right now. He can make defensive plays. He's a defensive playmaker. He'll block a big shot here or there, right? Or he'll jump a passing lane here or there. But right now, he's not a good defensive player. As a matter of fact, the one time they won a playoff series against the Minnesota Timberwolves, one of the best bits of offense that the Timberwolves had was toss the ball to Patrick Beverly and let him attack John Moran off the bounce. And he was having a lot of success that way. So that's the thing. Like right now. John Morant's a bigger defensive liability and a lesser half-court shot creator. So I think Jalen Brunson is a slightly better basketball player right now. Within the next couple of years, Jaw's going to improve as an off-ball defender. He's going to put on a little bit muscle so he can improve as an on-ball defender. He's going to get better at deciphering playoff defenses, identifying the, the types of counters that defenses employ against him in a series to try to make him uncomfortable. Like He really struggled with the Lakers' pick-and-roll coverage. He's going to have opportunities to figure those things out, and then he will become 
a much better player than Jalen Brunson. But that was the only point I was trying to make. Like I was explaining why I had the Knicks above the Grizzlies in my rankings and explaining why I view Jalen Brunson as a slightly better player than John Moran in the short term. But I wanted to have an opportunity to actually talk about the basketball reasons for that, so I'm glad we got to do that today. All right, four mailbag questions. And a couple of them are going to be quick. Um, any plan? Oh wait, I actually only have three mailbag questions. That's my bad. So uh, from Andy, any plans for a weekly NBA roundtable podcast once the season starts? Would be great to see you interact with other volume guys breaking down games, plays in the league, etc. So I'm not going to get into details here because we have to finalize some stuff, but we have at least two things that we're working on um, that will add some kind of wrinkles to the to the regular season in the way that we do the show. I do plan on working with guests more frequently this year. Um, but at the end of the day, this show is it's at its core is always going to be just me breaking down games. Um, I, for those of you guys who have become fans of the show over the summer, like this is very different than what our show is normally like. Like we do, although these, uh, these uh, season previews are a little bit more like what we like to do, but the, the player rankings lists and the all-time rankings lists, and that's all stuff just designed to get through the summer, right? It just gives us an excuse to talk about basketball in a bigger picture for fun in the, uh, in the dregs of the NBA offseason. But in the regular season, it's a pretty consistent theme. I will wake up every day, watch the games from last night, give you a breakdown of the games, and then two or three nights a week for major national TV games will go live right after the games. But at its core, this is breaking down games. But what we're going to try to do is add like a once the once a week ty- type of thing where we bring someone on and talk more big picture stuff. So that's kind of the uh, game plan. I'll keep you guys posted once we finalize stuff. Um, next mailbag question. Why don't teams in the NBA utilize more plays outside of pick and roll? Isn't the consensus when the ball moves more, the game is more exciting to watch? Also, this should give teams um, that have a tougher offense. So I'm trying to read this properly. Also, this this should give teams a tougher offense to pit against the defense. I'm removing one of the words there. Um, So this is an interesting dynamic. So first of all, there's a reason why teams have gone away from running sets to the extent that they used to. And the main reason why is just players are so much better now in terms of skill. Our skill development has reached a point now where we have probably like a solid 50 players in the league that are really good at making tough shots, right? Pull-up jump shots off the dribble, tough floaters, shots out of the post, shots out of isolation. So like, it's gotten to a point now where any NBA offense can get a pretty decent look that a guy can make a good percentage of the time without having to do anything too crazy. And so, for instance, like, Let's say, for instance, I've got Damian Lillard on my team. And, uh, you know, it's a slowdown situation. We got to stop. It's the, you know, two minutes left in the second quarter. Like, Dame might just dribble the ball up the floor, up the left wing, and guys will run to the corners, and a guy will run to the right wing, and then Nurkic will come up and set a pick, and he'll come off the screen. And if he gets a wide open threes or pull up three, he's going to take it. If he gets a floater, he's going to take it. If they help, he'll make the kickout pass, and they're going to get a good shot. They're going to get a shot that they can make. That is brute force offense. You hear me talk about this on the show. Brute force offense works even in the playoffs. And the reason why is because players are so damn good now. But I agree in the sense that like, I think teams should not use that as an excuse to not run sets. 
The reason why you don't run sets that often is not just that players are better. It's a scouting thing. You get to the postseason and all those five out sets that the Warriors run don't work as well, right? You get to the postseason and those dribble handoffs that the Kings run, they don't work as well, right? That's a pretty, that's a pretty consistent theme in NBA history. So at that point, the brute force offense actually becomes the most reliable offense. My thing is, why can't you do both? Why can't it be brute force offense coming off of action? Even if it buys you just a tiny bit more of an advantage, right? Even if they scout the sets and they're ahead of them, but you just have a, like you have just a half a step on your on-ball defender every time, as opposed to attacking a stagnant on-ball defender. Maybe over the course of 40 pick and rolls in a game, that is an extra, you know, tenth of a point per possession. That's, what's that, four points? That's four points in a game, in a playoff game that might be decided by four points, right? So, like, I'm a big believer in, like, running complications, doing things to flow into your pick and roll. Like, if Dame wants to run a pick and roll with Nurkic, why not bring the ball up the floor pitch it to Anthony Simons, run to the corner, and then have Anthony Simons run into you with the dribble handoff as you flow off of the Nurkic pick and roll. Why not do that just to keep the defense a little bit more off balance, right? But I, I, but the reason why is simple. It's fatigue. Guys get tired in the game, and you realize that, hey, we can get a good look without having to run something. So I'll just run to the corner. Dame will run his pick and roll and take a pull-up three. You know, rather than us do something to get into that, let's just do that, and then we'll run back and save our energy for defense. That's the reason why they do it. I just don't necessarily think it's the right process. And I do think that teams that run complications are more effective offensively for that reason. And the Nuggets are a team I'd give credit for that. Like The Nuggets are typically going to run some sort of interchange into their brute force offense, and I think that that's a force multiplier. It makes your offense that much more impactful. All right, last one from Bob. Hi, Jason. Great show. What are your thoughts on seeding? For example, if the Nuggets or Warriors finish with the five or six seed in the regular season, will you still have them as title favorites based on previous success or are they bumped down in a contender tier? So this is going to be an interesting thing throughout the season. I uh, am not going to care much about seeding. The main thing that I'm going to care about is how good you look as a basketball team when you are healthy. Because there are going to be a lot of teams that fall to five and six because they're Star has some nagging injury, and rather than playing him through it, they're just going to rest him for a little while, right? You're going to see a lot of teams that are, especially after the last postseason and the last several postseasons, where we're seeing that teams that don't take the regular season super seriously or that struggle through the regular season can still reach their ceiling when they get to the postseason. That shows us that the regular season does matter less than ever. Um, I do think it does matter, though, and as we go back through NBA history, it is top seeds that end up winning. Who won last year? The one seed Denver Nuggets. Who won the, the year before that? The Golden State Warriors, who started 15-1 and one and won a shit ton of games until Steph got hurt, right? Who won the year before that? The Milwaukee Bucks, who won a shit ton of games. Who won the year before that? The Lakers, who won a shit ton of games. So, like, the regular season does matter. And obviously, good veteran teams that have proven playoff history that are also top seeds, those are the teams that I'm going to believe in the most in the postseason. But if I have to choose between a top seed that is an unproven playoff team or a six seed that I've seen succeed in the playoffs and within this season I've seen look dominant with their core players, 
I'm obviously going to trust that team more. But let's be clear. If we get to June or if we get to mid-April and the Lakers are the one seed, I'm going to pick them to win the title. If we get to April and the Phoenix Suns are the one seed, going to pick them to win the title. The Nuggets are the one seed, going to pick them to win the title. The Celtics or the Bucks, right? Like I'm obviously going to think of good like proven teams that are also dominating the regular season are going to get the most amount of faith. And then uh, I'm going to go with veteran teams over young, successful teams beneath them. Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.